Hi everyone. Um, I'll just be reading the scripture. Right then Jesus made the disciples get on into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! They were so frightened, they screamed. Just then, Jesus spoke to them. Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water towards Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. And he, as he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, You man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? When they got to, into the boat, the wind settled down. Those in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, You must be God's son. Thanks, Ellen. So we just finished a 12-week series about the content of our faith, only to jump into a passage in Matthew's Gospel about the practice of faith. By the time we get to the middle of chapter 14, the action is thoroughly underway. John the Baptist, if we remember, is Jesus's cousin, and he was actually a couple chapters back, or earlier in this chapter even, uh, beheaded for mixing faith and politics. He meddled in the affairs of a corrupt and depraved ruler. It's a good thing for us to remember that while personal, our faith is never private. It's always lived out in front of and often in conflict with the ruling powers. You see, faith is not reserved for quiet times and mountaintop retreats. Faith might get you separated from your head. That's what the story of John the Baptist tells us. So Jesus is told about his cousin's death, and it devastates him. This is a very human Jesus that we can empathize with and empathizes with us. This, after all, was his cousin who he grew up with, his cousin who leapt in his Aunt Elizabeth's womb at Mary's proximity. Talk about being tuned into who Jesus is is the fetal John had a clue that Mary was carrying the cosmically precious cargo of the Christ child. And now John was a victim of Herod's shamelessness and vicious appetites. But this didn't stop Jesus from serving the crowds. That happened immediately preceding our story from today. The feeding of the 5,000 plus. Jesus proclaimed good news and then held an ad hoc potluck on a hillside. Last week, with a group of Field Ed students that I was helping facilitate, 
theological reflection. We took the time and attention to do that practice of hand copying scripture and I had them hand copy this passage from Matthew 14 and it stuck out to me in that slow reading and tangible hand copying as never before that one line, we have nothing here except for five loaves of bread and two fish. What they were saying makes total sense. Faced with more than 5,000 people, five loaves and two fish is absurd. Their math was right. Why give even a handful of people anything if they give the overwhelming majority nothing at all? There's also a different sort of absurdity in their statement. We have nothing but the thing which we have. How familiar is that phrase from you and I? We have nothing but exactly what we have. We have nothing but exactly what we actually have. But what if what we actually have can be conscripted into the service of the God of creativity and abundance? That might actually be just the thing we need. It might be just enough. It might be more than enough. This cooperation, this collaboration with Jesus is the start of what faith is and could be. And it comes in the midst of deep sadness and sorrow. It persists against all odds. But that's not often how we treat faith. We treat faith as this static thing that we never feel like we quite have enough of. That we don't feel like we have enough of it to make things work. Maybe this is no more evident than right now when we're all loaded down with these cumulative effects of months and months of sorrow and uncertainty. And we're still not out of the woods and we don't even really know where the edge of the woods are. Maybe now it's good for us to remember. As Pastor Howard John Wesley puts it, that faith is not a characteristic. Faith is not a personality trait. Faith is not a sanctified degree that you hang on your wall. Faith is not even a possession that you have. Faith, even though it is a noun, is best operating as a verb. Because if faith is anything, is that which requires and demands action. Faith is that which moves you and motivates you. Faith unsettles you. Faith shakes you. Faith calls you to stand up and do something. Faith is not something you talk about, but when you have it, it pushes you and urges you to not become complacent in the places that God has not called you. But faith calls you to stand to your feet and make a movement in life. That's what Pastor Howard John Wesley says. If you're like me, this time that we're in right now hasn't necessarily dashed your faith, but it's more kind of like slowly ground it down, right? It's, it's maybe, in Pastor Wesley's words, maybe it's altered your movement in life. You may be feeling discouraged, tired, afraid. In some sense, then, it feels like we're all the disciples in the boat. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We know who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of, but we're just kind of out there floating in our own little pods, buffeted by a headwind and some nasty waves. 
most of our mental and physical energy is being spent kind of like scooping, bailing water out that's coming over the sides rather than rowing our way back to shore. This summer, um, this is kind of a funny story. What, if you've noticed, there are so many nautical metaphors right now. And so the summer when I saw my, when we got to see my in-laws for like a modified summer vacation, the kids were turned on to their favorite new television show with their grandpa, Rach's dad. It was one of those things you walk into the room, you see them all cozy and like rapidly watching the TV and you assume that they're watching Frozen 2 for like the 10th time in a row. But instead, you glance to the screen and you notice that they're in the throes of another episode of The Deadliest Catch, if anyone's ever caught that. Like this show is about the perilous work of Arctic crabbers and fishermen. And there are plenty of unsavory characters. And in the course of the little snippets that I was able to catch, the captain who always had like a cigarette hanging out of of his mouth, he was like one of those guys that it like sticks to his lip, you know, sort of thing. And he performed like several field medicine stitches on people that got injured on the boat. He cussed out a newbie for doing something unsafe. And at one point he also like broke out into doxology when they made a record setting pot is what they call it of king crab that would pay for all the risk and and make their whole season worthwhile this is not exactly your standard kids programming right unless we smooth over the biblical story these sorts of folks on the deadliest sketch are exactly the kind of folks that jesus came to and included in his work roughneck fishermen hot-headed peter shady tax collectors like I would, when I was writing that section, I was wondering what all the nicknames our president would give to each of the apostles. It would be pretty amazing, right? We assume that the apostles are all like good seminary students who are theologically versed and willing and able to learn deep biblical truths in like a classroom laboratory setting, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus went deep with fishermen. Jesus went deep with fishermen about the things of God. Their faith was forged in the middle of waves and storms and fish guts and the loneliness of not even being able to see the coastline anymore. That's how Jesus discipled people. That's how Jesus is discipling us. These sorts of folks are us, not the ones with it all together, We're more like the pigs who God has thrown the pearl of great price to. Nothing disqualifies you from receiving the gift of grace and faith and having it grow. Not who you are or who you have been or who you think you are. Not how smart or how competent or how productive you feel. Not the amount of bandwidth that you do or don't feel like you have. No external factors are limiting you from knowing and following Jesus, not even in the greatest storm or most fearful or sorrowful season. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from following God. So it's here in our story in the, quote, very early morning after a long night of being tossed about that Jesus came to his disciples I love how the gospel accounts don't 
pull any punches in recording the apostles' misreads. In scholarship, this is known as the criterion of embarrassment. Basically, that means that the scriptures are trustworthy because they don't like cut out all of the embarrassing things that happened. Um, and no one had Jesus exactly perfectly figured out. That would be kind of the sign, the sign of a forgery if everything was really smooth and everyone knew exactly what was going on. Even the ones who stand to benefit most from this often come off as a little slow on the uptake. They thought Jesus was a ghost. You know, and you did a really good job of reading the exceedingly frightful way that they thought Jesus was a ghost. They were terrified. I'm comforted by this because it all reads a little silly. But so do many of my real-time thoughts and fears in the hindsight of how Jesus has shown up in my life. I get it so wrong. It's so like wacky and confusing when I think back of what I used to think. We're, we're allowed to change our minds. We're allowed to learn. We're allowed to receive revelation. I'm comforted by this because it shows how dynamic and how ever developing a life of faith is. One minute you think that Jesus is a ghost and a few Verses down, you say definitively and decisively, you must be God's son. Like, like proclamation, true proclamation comes on the heels of the most absurd ridiculousness about ghosts, right? There is something in this that is inherently patient about the way God looks at us in our faith. Something inherently hospitable for Christ to continue to make room for us to grasp what's going on and to be held and to be healed by truth and a peace that is truer and more peaceful than our ability to understand. So Jesus speaks peace and he tells them, do not be afraid. Those are words that are echoing from Isaiah 43. Don't fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you won't be scorched and flame won't burn you. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Those words also, do not be afraid, are the words that come from God's messenger, the angel, and they bookend the Jesus story. Do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy for all people. Do not be afraid. I know you are looking for the crucified Jesus. He's not here. He is risen. And Peter, the ever eager one, invites himself to come out onto the waters with Jesus, to join Jesus on the waters. Peter is so us, (laughs) presumptuous, excited when it feels good. Like it feels like we're starting to sync up with what God's doing and we actually know a little bit what's going on. So we say, can I come? Can I come out on the waters with you? Can I do this thing that is inconceivable and doesn't actually like, isn't actually a real option? Can I join you? And this, you know, as a side note, 
as one of these people, this kind of feels like what many white people who are learning about God's heart for justice are like in these times. Like we're late comingly sensing that God is in this movement for the dignity and justice for black lives. And we're starting to get our sea legs by reading and learning and by being more and more comfortable with concepts and terminologies. So we want to jump out of the boat and join in the fight. And Jesus says, come on. And at the beginning, it's pretty cool. It feels pretty invigorating. Maybe you rush back to the feeling of where your faith was seemingly at its strongest, high school, college, like mountaintop experiences. But then comes the headwind that takes Peter's eyes off Jesus and he calls out, Lord, rescue me. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be. And Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have any doubts? This passage, this like verse right here, often gets used as like a bludgeon against doubt or weak faith. I wonder though if these words out of Jesus's mouth are less of a reprimand and more of an amusement. Like that's the sort of thing we don't, we don't get um, tone signifiers for how these things are said. It sounds a lot different if Jesus is saying a, with a kind of a smirk and a smile and a playfulness, I've got you. Why did you ever doubt that? You man of little faith, what is going on with you? If not, I think Jesus would seem so cruel, so callous. What do you mean, why is Peter afraid while walking on water in the middle of a storm? (laughs) But what if this passage isn't primarily even about doubt? It's about fear. It's about the kind of fear that clouds and distracts. It's about the sort of fear that constrains and cripples. Peter doesn't begin to sink and then become frightened. He becomes frightened and then he begins to sink. He he sinks from his fear. This feels so right and so familiar. It's our fear that causes us to sink. And it is our fear that causes us to seek more solid ground. But when Jesus calls us out onto the water to join him, that, he calls us out there because that's where Christ is, on the unsteady ground that is not actually even ground at all. It shifts under our feet, and if we stop moving, and if we lose our focus, we're going to start to sink. There are so many ways that we choose ground that feels more solid. And that ground has nothing to do with faith sometimes. It feels more solid to make a determination that we're always going to think one way or do one thing. And for many of us, this is what we're told that faith is. Like getting things settled in our minds, that this is the way it is. This is how it's going to be. If that's true, then computers and robots that are programmed with logic and rules are infinitely more capable of faith than humans who are made in the image of God. Have you ever thought about that? If it's all just the right rules and and 
understanding uh, when to say yes and when to say no, then computers and robots could be programmed to be way more faithful than human beings. But no, faith is wrestling. Remember that's, Israel knows this. Jacob was a wrestler uh, in the womb and um, with the angel. He came up limping because of it. Faith is faltering. Faith is threading the needle. Faith is fear and trembling. But faith is also walking on water. Faith is living in such a way that Jesus makes all the difference in the world for how we're living. So I, I admire Peter's faith, which was not afraid to go out onto the water without much of a plan. Peter's faith intuited that in Jesus, that God was moving on the water because God had long moved on the water. God moves on the water to bring life and flourishing out of chaos and lack in creation. God moves on the water to liberate as in the story of the Exodus when he parted the Red Sea. God moves on the water to show us who we are, beloved and recipients of divine pleasure and delight at Christ's baptism. God moves on the water to recreate as in the waters, as in the river of the waters of life in the new creation in Revelation 22. This is the grand story that Peter and the disciples were grafted into in which we also become a part. When we join Jesus on the waters, we become part of this big story. This week, will you, will you remember this big story? That each challenge this week, just this week, each challenge, each storm or wave, every still or glassy time becomes an opportunity to collaborate and to commune with the God who's got you, who can hold you, who will not let you be swamped or overwhelmed. Will you, just this week, walk by faith, by the faith that you actually have, not some idea of faith, not some shiny, perfect faith, but by faith in action, by faith that is a work in progress, by faith that walks one step at a time towards Jesus, towards Jesus on the water. And friends, this week in the midst of fear and isolation, in the midst of exhaustion and uncertainty, Will you join with Jesus out on the waters and pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this story that is wild and silly and um, a challenge to us. Lord, where you are walking on the waters, um, let us have the faith of Peter to join you, and let's not take our eyes off of you. Or grow in us just a, a tiny mustard seed of faith that might grow up big and be a place of hospitality and rest 
and flourishing and vibrancy. We do that this week um, in the midst of, of exhaustion and um, discouragement. We do that in uh, the places where scared and sorrowful. We thank you for all these things. In the name of Jesus. Amen.